Good morning. Good morning. Again. Good morning. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, offering envelopes in the box. Andrea is still our contact number, and she does such a wonderful job at it. Days of Praise booklets are in the lobby, along with Acts and Facts, and we have plenty to go around. And we've got a whole bunch of them sit there on the, on the front pew. Uh, evening service will continue tonight at 6 p.m. Bring drinks and a dish to pass. Uh, do we have any updates on, on anybody in the church family that uh, needs to be addressed? That would be my understanding. Today is the first Sunday, but uh, we will have it next week. And which I think is also Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> I wonder how that works. Okay. Um, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6. Verses 1 through 12, and that'll be page 1040 in your pew Bibles.
Before we begin, Pastor made a comment to me about verse 11 in Ecclesiastes. If you want to take a quick peek at that. No, 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 just, just on the, the, the reading for, for meditation. Book of Ecclesiastes, verse 11. Chapters, chapter 6, Ecclesiastes. pastor's comment was, was uh, very direct and to the point. We can apply this to all of our lives today. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Which means the more we talk, the less it means. Correct? So sometimes uh, an answer should be short and simple. Maybe I should take my own advice. <laughs> Would you stand with us as we begin our prayer? <clears throat> Doug, may I prevail upon you to lead us in opening prayer? standing. You take your red hymnal and turn to number two. Number two in the red. Oh, 
morning? <laughs> My mic off? Rachel, no, it's not. No, it's not. All right. Does anyone have a favorite hymn this morning? I will repeat it closer. No. Dale. Oh, Doug. No. Oh, well, 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 they were about the same. Okay, he said Doug. He, he, he deferred. Holy, holy, holy. I think it's in the brown. 100 in the red. Okay, 100 in the red. 100 in the red. Do you have a reason?
A scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 30, verses 25 through 43. It'll be page 1,000, I'm sorry, page 47, page 47 in your pew Bibles. If you'll stand with us when you receive it, then we'll begin. George, do you need the mic? No, I don't think so. Okay. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob and to Laban, oh, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so I can go back to my homeland. Give me my wishes, my, give me my wives and, the, and children from whom I have served you, for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. And Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, bless me because Okay, brother, take your time. Bless me because of you. He added, uh, name your wages and I will pay them. And Jacob said to him, you know how I have worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you have done, you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord, Jehovah, has blessed you wherever I have wherever I have been. But now when when my uh, when may wow, I do something for my own household, uh, what shall I give you? He asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all of your flocks today and remove from them every speckled and spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted and speckled goat. They will be my wages. And my honesty will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on my wages, on the wages you have paid me, any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or 
considered a stone. Agreed, says Laban. Let it be as you have said. That same day he removed all of the male goats that were staked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them. And all the dark colored lambs and he placed them in the care of his sons. Uh, then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob. While Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. Jacob, however, took fresh cut branches from Papa almond and plain trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. Then the flocks were in heat and came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of the branches and they bore young that were straight, straight, streaked, or speckled or spotted. And Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the staked and, and the streaked and dark colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals. Wherever the strong females were in heat, whenever the strong females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so that they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maid servants and men servants and cattle and donkeys. Amen. Amen. May God add his wonderful and cherished blessing to the reading. Please remain standing. We take your red hymnal again and turn to number eight. Number eight in the red. Eight.
Our text this morning is Genesis 30. Our last study in the series on the patriarchs dealt with Jacob's family. God led him to the well site of the town wherein his uncle Laban resided. And there Rachel, Laban's youngest daughter, came to water her father's sheep. The well was capped with a heavy stone, which the shepherds of the area would remove only when all the flocks came in. Jacob, however, removed the stone on his own and watered Laban's stock immediately. And he soon found himself in Laban's house as a guest and also as an employee. He got to state his own wages. Well, well, what am I going to pay you, said Laban. And his response was that he would work seven years in order to have Rachel in marriage. But you know the account. Laban tricked him, married off Leah, the older daughter, to Jacob instead. His point was that he refused to marry off the younger daughter because he said, that's not our custom. The older one has to be married first. Well, that irritated Jacob. Nonetheless, he worked hard another seven years to obtain Rachel. So 14 years to obtain Rachel. The scripture says, because Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, God took notice of this and he opened Leah's womb to bear children to Jacob, but he closed Rachel's womb. And Leah bore Jacob four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And we noted some spiritual lessons. Number one, God will remove the impossible that keeps people from the life-giving water of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jacob defied the shepherds. He opened the well. You know, if you look in the Old Testament, the shepherds were noted as the prophets. The prophets of the Old Testament were the shepherds. But they became corrupt. This is in the spiritual dimension. They withheld or they altered God's word. And God judged them for that. Secondly, we learn that no impediment is too great or too heavy or too overwhelming for us, which God's grace cannot remove. Jacob by himself opened the well cap for Laban's flock. So we learn that it requires only one faithful shepherd to water the sheep. If in fact there are impediments in the way. And the third lesson we learn is that sexual intimacy is not always a sign of love. And the ability to produce a child may not secure a marriage. Leah had the babies. She did. 
But Rachel had Jacob's heart. Now that's going to change because I read ahead. I cheated. <laughs> it's, it's going to change, but it's going to take some time in Jacob's heart to change. In today's study, I want to examine Jacob's prosperity as a result of God's blessings upon him. And as we come to God's word, let us give thanks. Lord, bless us with the truth of your word. We're thankful for it. There have been many times in scripture or in the history of Bible burnings, persecution of Christians who had the scriptures. They had to go into the catacombs in the days of Rome. They went in caves. They had to hide from the authorities because the authorities were the enemy. And the authorities would burn their Bibles, their scrolls, and imprison them and put them in the Colosseum for a show. And many of them lost their lives there as well. So here we are, centuries later, and we have in our possession our own personal Bibles and probably in most of our cases, many Bibles at home, different translations and so on. We're so blessed. But having said that, there is yet places <coughs> excuse me, in the world where they have no Bible. No Bible. In their native language. The Wycliffe Bible translators work hard to change all of that. But it's arduous work. So what I can say is thank you, Lord, for us to have our own Bibles, many multiple Bibles. May we make good use of them. May we be students of your word. It is a privilege, it is an honor to have the sacred scriptures in our personal position. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking today at the subject of Jacob's prosperity. The first thing we note is that many children increase Jacob's family. We did not read this, but the first 22 verses of Genesis 30 deal with the continued rivalry between Leah and Rachel. Initially, Rachel was barren. She complains to Jacob in verse 1, Give me children or I'll die. But he was quick to scold her, saying, Hey, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Translation, Why are you blaming me for something only God can do? And has done, by the way. So Rachel married off Bilhah, her maidservant, saying, verse 3, She can bear children for me. Through her, I too can build a family. Remember, Sarah did the same thing with her maidservant, Hagar, when she married off to Abram. That didn't work out so good, did it? I mean, think about this. The Ishmaelites that were born to Hagar, the Arabs of our day are the Ishmaelites. And what are they known for? They are known for persecuting the Israelites and pledging themselves to push Israel into the sea. 
So sometimes the solutions that men come up with when they don't instruct... Uh, be, or when they're not instructed by the Word of God, and they're not governed by that, when they come up with their own human, ins, you know, they've been thinking a little bit, but God has not been in their thought, those decisions don't turn out too good. And so that's what happens here. Bilhah bore Jacob two sons, Dan, which means vindicated, and Naphtali, meaning struggle, not to be undone, when Leah stopped conceiving, she married off Zilpah to Jacob, who bore him Gad, which means good fortune, and Asher, which means happy, verse 13, Issachar, verse 18, meaning reward, Zebulon, verse 20, meaning honor, six sons all total for Leah personally, and one daughter, Dinah, verse 21. The rest were born to Zilpah. Rachel then conceived, and she had Joseph, which means God added, which was her prayer request. Look at verse 24. May the Lord add to me another son, she prays. And God did. Now if you're keeping count, through Leah, Rachel and their maidservants Bilhah and Zilpah, Jacob's family has grown to 11 sons and one daughter. Leah's remark in verse 20, I have borne him six sons, is a reference to her own personal giving of birth. But you have to add in the two sons born through her maid Zilpah. So that makes eight for Leah. Eight. Three for Rachel, Dan, Naphtali, Joseph. One more son to come for Rachel, Benjamin, which will bring the total to twelve. Twelve sons who became the clan heads of Jacob's family. If we use the normal gestation period for these pregnancies of nine months each, add in the birth of Dinah, the daughter, and a month or two maybe between conceptions, we may surmise that the years have been ticking away, perhaps 10, 12 years, resulting in 20 years when Jacob breaks away from Laban to head back home, chapter 31, verse 38. And I think it would be a fair assessment of Jacob to say that he's not the wheeler dealer he once was. He has settled down in Laban's household. He has sired many sons, one daughter. He's made a home for his own family. And in Jacob's case, God has blessed him with a large family. But how was he to support such a family as a tenement rancher? How am I going to do this? I mean, when does he get a chance to break loose and have his own homestead. So financial prosperity was a must for Jacob. He didn't have it living with Laban. Now Jacob tried to break ties with Laban and return home, verse 25. 
The years have come, the years have gone, and Jacob didn't have much to account for all the years of service that he had given Laban. So he just wanted to take his wives, take his children, and be on his way. What was wrong with that? Well, Laban, however, was reluctant to let Jacob go. Why? Verse 27. I have learned, says Laban, by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will pay them. Blank. Laban is saying that Jacob has been like an amulet. He's been like a lucky charm that has resulted in blessings coming to Laban. So he didn't want the golden goose that lays the golden egg to up and leave him. By the way, divination here is a Greek Hebrew word to consult with spirits, read omens, interpret signs, to discern what has happened, or what will happen. All of this was strictly forbidden to God's people. Let me read it for you. Deuteronomy 18, verse 10. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination of sorcery, interpreting omens, engaging in witchcraft or casting spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist, or who consults the dead. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? It goes on. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And by the way, all of those things are in the occult world. Satan's world. I could tell tell you this, frankly. Demons know things. They know things that you don't know. And so to consult them, There is a sense of knowledge there, but it's all wicked. It's not what God wants us to know. Furthermore, we learn that all of this lingo about God blessing Laban, all this God talk must be taken cautiously, because Laban, as we shall discover later, worshipped idols. Chapter 31, verse 30 says, Many gods. He worshipped many gods. He's not a believer in Jehovah God. And he became totally unhinged when he thought Jacob stole his gods. In our text, Jacob knows, verse 30, The little you had before I came has increased greatly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. Sounds like Jacob has a true understanding of God and his blessings of Laban through Jacob's hard work. But we need to be cautious here. Jacob is using the same kind of spiritual jargon used in Padamaran to fortify his own scheme to negotiate his wages. You're very correct, Uncle, he's saying and concluding that we are blessed by the Lord and you are blessed because of me. So here's my proposal for my wages, verse 32. I'll sift through all of your flocks and then in every spotted, speckled, or dark-colored lamb or goat will become my wages. The remaining white sheep, 
or white goats will remain yours. And Laban agreed to that. But I want you to observe what crafty Laban did. Verse 38 and following. That same day, he, Laban, removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white to them, all the dark-colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons, Laban's sons. Then he put a three-day journey, I'm reading scripture, a three-day journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. What's going on here? Laban was fast trying to cheat Jacob of the agreed-upon wages. <laughs> That's what he's doing. Jacob is supposed to get the spotted, the speckled, and so forth, you know. So Laban, boys, he's talking to his sons, get him out of here. Get him a three-day journey away. So that when Jacob comes to inspect the flock, there won't be any speckled or spotted lambs and goats, which are going to be his wages. They'll just be the white woolies and we'll be okay. So what did Jacob do? Verse 37 and following. This guy's still a deceiver. He took a number of branches, poplar, almond, plane trees. He stripped some of the bark, revealing the white inner wood. Verse 37. He made the branches appear to be spotted and speckled. These he placed near the water troughs, with the result that the sheep or goats that mated there produced lambs and kids, young goats, who were born spotted or speckled, in other words, his wages. What is more, he did this only when the strong animals were ready for mating, verse 41. The result being that those ewes gave birth to spotted and speckled offspring, his wages. But when the weaker animals were ready to mate, Jacob did not put the streaked branches out. And the result was offspring of an inferior quality and they were Laban's that's what he was doing verse 42 and following but if the animals were weak he would not place them there so the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones went to Jacob and in this way the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and men servants and camels and donkeys all the things that money can buy. Now, what do we think about this? This voodoo magic approach to mating animals, tree branches with the bark strips so that they look like they're striped tree branches. That has no scientific substance to it whatsoever. Nothing. For explaining why the sheep or why the goats that made it in front of these branches were responsible for the lambs or the little kid goats being born speckled or spotted. There's no scientific evidence for that whatsoever. 
The only real explanation for this is that God himself was fulfilling his promise to Jacob. Chapter 28, verse 15. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The patriarch Job was humbled by God when God revealed to Job just how little he knew about life and living in the animal kingdom. Let me read it for you. God is speaking to Job. Different time, different patriarch. And God said to Job, Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Hmm. Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his rope? I gave him the wasteland as his home. The salt flats are his habitat. He laughs at the commotion of the town. He does not hear a driver's shout. He ranges the hills for his pasture. He searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger at night? Can you hold him to the furrow with a harness? Will he till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on him for his great strength? Will you leave your heavy work for him? Can you trust him to bring in your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? Job 39, the verse 1 and following. And the answer to all those questions is no, no, no. You can't make the ox do anything. The wild nature is in him. Now we know that man has learned how to domesticate wild animals, but that's not God's point to Job. God's point is that it is God Almighty as creator who governs the mating, the birthing, the sustaining, the maturing of the animals, as is proved by those wild creatures who do just fine without man's husbandry and efforts. They're just out in the forest doing their thing. Reproducing. Eating the grass, the grain. To point, Jacob's sheep and goat offspring were not born speckled or spotted because he displayed branches with striped bark before them in the mating season. God was simply paying Jacob his agreed-upon wages, which Laban, his uncle, conspired to steal from him by conscripting those speckled, spotted creatures and removing them to a secret hideout three days away. Away from Laban's livestock, which Jacob 
was responsible for caring and away from Jacob's eyes where he couldn't see what was going on with the mating and the birthing. Think about this. Those speckled, spotted sheep, goats possess the genetic code to reproduce offspring which would be disposed to the same kind of unusual markings. So Laban reasoned, I'll just remove those adult ewes, leaving only the white woolies for Jacob to tend to, verse 36. They will produce only white offspring, and Jacob will not be the wiser. But God was the wiser. And God saw to it that these white sheep and goats gave birth to spotted and speckled offspring which became Jacob's wages not Laban's what is even more relevant for its spiritual value is the reality that Jacob at this point in his life actually believed that his superstitious ploy of breeding livestock in front of striped tree branches would result in striped offspring he actually believed that He was acting on voodoo occult methodology with no thought of God's grace and sovereignty in these matters. He's still the wheeler dealer. He has always been. He's not yet come to saving faith in God. You've got to keep that in mind. He continues to live by his wits and God blesses him despite his ignorance and despite his superstition. There are better things for Jacob that God has in mind. In the meantime, he allows Jacob to play the fool. You see how wonderfully God controls things. We think we're independent. We think I am master of my own destiny. And God, the creator, sits in the heavens and the scripture says, he laughs. He laughs. What would tickle God to make him laugh? He laughs at our arrogance. He laughs at our thinking that we are in control when he knows as creator, he is the one that is in control. Now, what spiritual lessons from Jacob in Laban's homestead? What lessons do we learn? Number one, polygamous marriages may cater to a man's lust, but they create homesteads characterized by jealousy and strife and pain. The next big thing to come down the pike which will devastate marriage one step further in our country than the sanction of homosexual marriages will be and already is in motion that of polygamous unions. There is already part and portion of this teaching of the Mormons and their religion through a recent article that I read. The Mormon Church has issued a manifesto in 1890 to forbid these polygamous marriages because they took so much heat about it 
what they were doing, that they backed off a bit. They backed off. However, the old school devotees of Joseph Smith, however, followed the practices of their founder. And I'm reading from their works. After receiving a revelation commanding him to practice plural marriages, Joseph Smith married multiple wives and introduced the practice to close associates. This principle was among the most challenging aspects of the restoration for Joseph personally and for other church members. Brigham Young, successor of Joseph Smith, married 55 women, a number of whom were the plural wives of Joseph Smith. Wikipedia reports, of his 55 wives, 21 had never been married before, 16 were widows, 6 were divorced, 6 had living husbands still, and the marital status of 6 others was never known. At the time of Young's death, 19 of his wives had predeceased him, they died before him, and he was he divorced he was divorced from 10 of those wives. 23 survived him with the status of four wives unknown. In his will, Young shared his estate with the 16 surviving wives who had lived with him. The six surviving non-conjugal wives were not even mentioned in the will. End quote. Brigham Young, Joseph Smith, the Mormons. Virtually all of Africa practices polygamy. Most Muslim countries as well. Though the plural marriages in Muslim countries must consist of marrying only another Muslim. So what do we say of Jacob and some of the other patriarchs having plural wives? We don't have to think about it. Jesus has given us his word on it. Here it is. Haven't you read, says Jesus, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. Hmm. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Matthew 10, verse 4 and following. Now granted, this text is dealing primarily with divorce, to marry another, but notice the underpinnings to which Jesus refers. Number one, a man leaves home to marry a wife. Number two, those two 
become one flesh. Not three, not four, certainly not 55. Number three, the union of the two is not dissolvable by man. And number four, divorce was permitted to satisfy hard hearts, but originally marriage was forever. Boy, have we moved far, far away from the principles of the scripture. Marrying another person while your present wife was still living was condemned as adultery. Matthew 19, verse 19. Not simply as adding another wife. There's no polygamy in the New Testament church. None. Despite the spiritual repercussions for polygamy, do we not recognize the problem in Jacob's family because of marrying two wives and two maidservants as concubines or as lesser wives? The Oak Ridge Boys had a song some years ago, and I think it was a farce because of the, of the wording. And let me read it for you. Trying to love two women is like a ball and chain. Sometimes the pleasure just ain't worth the strain. It's a long, old grind, and it tires your mind. Second verse, trying to hold two women is tearing me apart. One's got my money and the other's got my heart. It's a long, old grind, and it tires your mind. This division Jacob brought into his family. Secondly, we need to learn that envy in people is rooted in the assumption that one has more than another, and that's not fair. Boy, I hear that a lot in our day. That's not fair. The eye gate plays an essential role in all of this. Verse 1. When Rachel saw, this is her perception, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Genesis 30 verse 1. What is that? What is it that Rachel saw? Well, she observed that Leah had birthed four sons to Jacob while she had zero, none. So she became jealous of Leah and critical of Jacob as though the disparity between her and Leah was somehow Jacob's fault. Now, there's no science to that. Just think about that a minute. She's emoting. She's not thinking. Being the same husband who sired sons through Leah was the same husband who shared her bed, so it did not make any sense to lay the blame for her barrenness on Jacob. But if truth be told, I think it was too painful for Rachel to acknowledge that God's providence had not smiled on her as a mother. 
And that was intentionally so because God saw that Leah was unloved by Jacob. Chapter 29, verse 31. And God compensated Leah by giving her children. The disparity between the haves and the have-nots is often fueled by jealousy. Bernie Sanders, the socialist, ran on the Democratic ticket for the presidency, and Hillary, to a lesser degree, both advocate a policy of equalization. Both of them. What's equalization? It's that of taking money from the haves and distributing it to the have-nots, resulting in a more level playing field economically. It's a destruction of our capitalism system. Sounds wonderful if you're a have-not and you're doing little to better yourself through gainful employment. It's not so good-sounding to the person who has worked hard to obtain what he or she has, taking full advantage of the free enterprise system open to all. It's the difference between the drones and the worker bees. The drones sit around watching TV all day, sipping mint juleps, while the worker bees are up at 5 in the morning and off to shop or office to work 9 to 10 hours to earn their keep. To our Christian work ethic, we must also add the providence of God. In Rachel's case, her lack of children had nothing to do with indolence. She was not lazy. She loved Jacob, surely as did Leah. But God was in the mix, and he determined that Leah received the same love, the same devotion from Jacob that he showered on Rachel. An envious eye concentrates on the disparity that exists between others and ourselves. More children, maybe, but certainly intangibles like, well, healthier children. This is what I call the advantage of the more, the more. So-and-so has more money, more free time, more friends, more respect, more power, more opportunities, more occasions of joy, more, more, more than me. While every day, for me, it's a struggle to survive and get ahead. Why do they have more than me? Some of these goals for more are within your reach. If you're motivated to work hard and to take advantage of the opportunities which exist in a free society. Paul put it this way, New Testament. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread you eat. And as for you, brothers, 
Never tire of doing what's right. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10 and following. Change what you can. Other achievements depend on the providence of God. They do. In fact, God has arranged the parts of the human body and used that in a way to describe the body of Christ, the church. And he's arranged the parts in the church just as he wants them to be. Let me read it for you. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are not presentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern, now not equal station, but equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices in it. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18 and following. So the charge here is don't let the eye gate make you envious of others. Be happy for them. Rejoice with them. Thirdly, God means for you, his people, to be a blessing to the world. Jacob told Laban, his uncle... The little you had before I came has increased greatly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. Verse 30. Now, you're not bragging here. This is just the undeniable truth. That is why when Jacob let his intentions be known that he was planning to head back to his own country, back to his own family homestead, Laban pleaded with him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. The Lord has blessed me because of you. Wow, so Laban could see it. Verse 27. Isn't this the set goal God has for all believers? It doesn't depend on how we are treated by the world. We are to be a blessing to those around us. Paul writes it this way. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient 
in whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, you should think about those things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and following. God's peace is experienced by the the forgiven who have confessed their sins to Jesus and believed in his redeeming love. He writes it this way, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, the first two verses. By God's grace, we have entered into peace with God. He's no longer our enemy. He's our friend. We're his sons. We're his daughters. And he cares for us. And has promised us a home with him in glory. Do you have that assurance in your heart today? If not, you can by confessing your sins and your need of a Savior. There's only one Savior, and that's Jesus. His name, by the way, means Savior. Jesus is the Greek word for Savior. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you'll bless it to our hearts. Poor Jacob, he's just rambling on here. He's at the mercy of Laban. The cheater is being cheated. That's true. You're allowing him to get a taste of his own deceptive heart and practices. And this is good for Jacob. It's good for any of us to see in the mirror of God's word what we really are like. I mean, he thought he was justified in everything he did. But here he's getting a good dose of his own medicine. Because Laban is out cheating him. And he's getting to see what he has done to his brother Esau. To the family name and integrity of the family. And here he is struggling. But Lord, he needs to learn these lessons as we do too. We cannot go on through life being something different than what we say. Forgive us for the hypocrisy. Make us genuine believers of faith. May you grant to us the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ that only comes when we know him as Savior. We are blessed to know that no matter the magnitude of our sin, the blood of Christ is so precious, so divinely integral, with the power of God that whoever comes under the shed blood of Christ by faith in him no matter how black their sin no matter how much sin they will be forgiven and brought into your family bless these truths to our heart and don't allow the evil one to snatch away the truth 
In Christ's name, amen. Our closing hymn is number 30 in Trinity. That's the red hymn. Number 30 in Trinity. Great hymn, Our God, Our Help. That's, that's whose our help is. Not only in ages past, but right now as well. Let's stand together and we'll sing. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. It does paint for us the sinfulness of our hearts as well as our longing for peace. But sometimes we seek for peace and harmony in the wrong place. It's to be found only in the Prince of Peace, the Lord Christ. The world holds out Little baubles, little pieces of what they say will bring you peace. A new car, a beautiful wife, 
house full of children. Respect at work. And on and on it goes. None of these things in and of themselves bring us peace. Because the sin of our heart is such that we malign and distort those things which are even good so that we cannot enjoy them as we ought. But Lord, bring us the peace of Christ, the reality of sins forgiven because of the blood of Christ for his payment for our sin. But it doesn't go to everyone. It goes to those who will trust him, who will put their faith in him and see him as the substitute, the stand-in, the one who will go to the pains of death for them and pay their debt. Lord, I'm thankful that you paid my debt. And I pray for each one here today that they will understand that the debt is too great for us to pay ourselves and be saved. It will take the perfect, sinless Son of God to pay for our sin. He's not paying for his own at Calvary. He's paying for the sins of his people. And we rejoice in that. Who loves like that? You said yourself, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friend said to his disciples and if we're your disciples it's said to us too in Christ's name we give you thanks help us to have faith where we don't have it in Jesus name Amen we are dismissed remember tonight uh, we'll be downstairs time of fellowship